You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Today's podcast, we welcome back two guests, Sunil Gupta and Anne Libra. Uh, Sunil teaches innovation at Harvard University. He is the founder of Rise and the author of the book Backable, Exploring How to Get People to Believe in Your Ideas. Uh, Anne Libra is the longtime creative executive at the Second City and a tenured professor at Columbia College, where she oversees the first ever BA in comedy writing and performance. And she is the author of the Second City Almanac of Improvisation. Uh, together, uh, those two are creating a brand new class for the Farley Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Northwestern University called Backable building an innovation practice, and that's going to debut this spring. Uh, so enjoy this conversation with two great guests. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with Neil Gupta and Ann Libra, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. So, Sunil, I actually, I'm curious about this because I don't know how this whole conversation started. I know when you called me uh, and we talked about possibly working together on this class for Northwestern, but how did, Nor- did Northwestern reach out to you? What's, what's the origin story here? You know, so it's, it's funny, Kelly. I was thinking about that right as I was jumping on here. And mm-hmm. uh, the way that I remember it, at least is, is that this is all your creation. You, 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 you reached out to me and, 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 and it was like, as soon as you did and, and mentioned the idea that, Hey, this could be a class that we could do together or a collaboration between second city and backable. Yeah. I mean, sparks went off right away for me. I mean, I, I just, I'm not that creative to come up with something like this. I'm, I'm almost positive. It was you, but it, as I was literally logging on for this conversation, I thought to myself, Gosh, you know, if, if you ever read, if you ever read The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, he's got this line, which is like, you know, when you're sort of in your field, you're, you're in your purpose, the universe conspires to help you. And that's kind of how I feel about this. Like the hmm. idea of partnering with Second City is never something I would have come up with. I had no idea that something like this would happen when I was writing Backable. But I have, I've literally been a Second City fan since... I was, you know, 19 years old and going to shows in Detroit and then later in Chicago. And then here we are, you know, working together. It's a, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. I, I mean, um, I'm not afraid to call people. Uh, that's the thing Anne's <laughs> aware of. Uh, and then, of course, then they slowly realize uh, that the real brains of the outfit is Anne Libra. And so, Anne, <laughs> I'm curious about this because I brought up this idea with you. I don't think you'd read Backable at that point other than hear me constantly talk about it in an annoying way that I do. Uh, <laughs> but, but then you kind of, you, you yes handed this thing like right away. So what were you, wh- wh- what did you see in it? Well, I think the, the biggest connection and one of the things that I keep talking about in terms of improvisation is that it's a practice. And if, if I'm an evangelist for something, it is the idea that you can use these exercises to practice being better at communicating, at convincing, at being a better human <laughs> in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sunil's focus on practice and playing exhibition matches and the ways in which you can practice immediately sparked things for me and 
in the same way that you that you Kelly had sort of made gone oh this is like our stuff there was just so much there that made sense to me in terms of what we could do to take it further into that world of practice because for me again as an improv evangelist I want to create improvisation exercises that help people do things better and one of the things that stuck out for me Sunil in the book uh, is you know, I read a lot of business books in, in my job. Yeah. And uh, if I read another story about Pixar, I'm, I'm going to throw that book through, through a window. <laughs> um, and what I loved about your book is that these are really fresh, interesting stories drawn from a variety of resources, so much so that I've literally adopted a couple of them into my keynotes. I give you credit every time. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, um, uh, the primatologist uh, story about the gun in the backpack is, is like, if that's on the greatest hits now of, of the Kelly Laird's uh, keynotes, but also yeah. the story you tell about your mom, you know, and, and literally I've had people uh, key in, I'm getting chills just hearing that story. And I'm telling it like way removed from the thing, you know, quoting it from your book. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious when you went into writing Backable, how, how frame with storytelling, did you know that that was going to be such a big part of the book? Did, was that a conscious thing or is that something you came to later? You know, um, first of all, I have to say there is a Pixar <laughs> I'm sorry. There had to be one. I interviewed right, you get one. So my, my, it's, it's, my, it's my good that, friend. You don't spend a lot of time there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But 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 it, it's a it's a good one. The C, the former CTO of Pixar, Oren Jacob, had to had to basically navigate this backable universe. And he had to convince all these people, and and he had to figure out ways on how to do it. And so I sat down with him to figure out what his secrets were. To answer your question, you know, I I, I guess I went into this book when when you start writing a book maybe maybe you've gone through this yourself is that oftentimes you can get really bogged down into the details you start writing and then you start getting really into like the intellectual side of it and and it's hard i think sometimes as a writer to really kind of keep connecting with you know why am i doing this like what what is it why does this really matter to me because if it doesn't matter to you and you're not connected at that level then i just don't think it's going to matter to the reader right it's just none of none of the power of what you're talking about is going to come through for me you know i i wrote this book and i continue to remind myself that my story is only possible because someone took a bet on us you know and 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 then specifically you know my mom was a refugee from the border of pakistan and india who you know grew up with no running water no electricity and she just decided you know she had this vision this very unlikely bold, audacious vision that one day she was going to move to the United States and she was going to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company. Very specific vision. Ford was, you know, the Google of its day. It was the only company that she had heard about in her village. And that was her dream. And her parents got behind it. They saved every rupee that they had. Eventually, she was able to get on a boat to the United States. She got a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. And she drives to Detroit, Michigan the day after she graduates. And she finds her way into a room with a hiring manager. And so this is her moment. This is her backable moment. And this hiring manager walks into the room and he, he looks at her application and then he looks at her resume. And then he's, and then all of a sudden he's like, well, wait a second. Are you applying for the job of an engineer? And she's like, yeah. And he says, well, I'm sorry. You know, we actually don't have any female engineers working here right now because see, this was 1967 and Ford Motor Company had thousands of engineers on staff, but not a single one of them was a woman. And so, you know, she can literally in this moment feel everything, everything like slipping out of her hands, like all the sacrifice, all the dreams she has a little girl, all of, all of, all of what her parents put into this. It's all, it's all slipping out of her hands and she's really deflated and she picks up her resume and picks up her purse and she begins to walk out of the room and then something clicks. And that thing that clicked is what I define in the book is what I call the game of now, where I think we, as, as people in our lives, we, we can choose to play the game of someday versus the game of now. And then the difference is with the game of someday, you know, we, we wait for courage before we take action. We build up enough audacity and courage, and then we act. With the game of now, it's really the reverse. You act, and then you let courage catch up along the way. And she was scared out of her mind in that moment, but she decided that she was just going to act. 
And what she did is she looked this guy straight in the eyes and she told him her story of everything that it took for her to get to this country, for her to get to this city, to get to this very room. And then, and then she, impl- she really, without even, you know, obviously having read the book, this was, you know, 50 years ago, she starts to put these things into practice. She flips him from an outsider into an insider. What she basically says to him is, look, if you don't have any females on staff, then things are changing. So why don't we change it together? You and me, we'll, we'll do this together and we will pave the way for more female engineers to join this company. And that will be part of something that will be your legacy. And, and this guy gets so inspired in this room that he goes out and he fights with his colleagues. He fights with his bosses. He advocates for her. He, he, he becomes a builder in this whole thing instead of a buyer. And, you know, ultimately in 1967, she becomes Ford Motor Company's very first female engineer. And so it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy story. It's a story that I grew up with, um, but it's a backable story. Again, like I had a middle manager from suburban Michigan, not taking a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world. Well, then, you know, we wouldn't be here right now having this conversation. My, my story would not exist. No. So, Anne, there, there's like five, six, seven different things inside that from our worlds of comedy and improvisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything coming to the top of your head? Well, I think the, the, the simplest one is being, and, and this is, again, something that really struck me in the book Backable and that I'm hoping to bring to the class that we're doing, which is really sharing your personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, we've spent a lot of time, we spent a lot of time in comedy talking about specifics, and how specifics are funny, um, but even more so how the things that are true about you are the things that make other people see see you as having a mind, um, that, that we have a tendency to look at, and there's a great deal of uh, research on this, that we have a tendency not to see other people as having minds, and it's those details, those personal details, this is who I am. Uh, and our willingness to self-disclose in that self-disclose in that way is that is the thing that makes someone want to get on board with us, that makes someone see us as a as a as another human who who can create something with us. And for me, that's the. And again, we don't anticipate that that that's going to be a powerful thing when we improvise. We don't anticipate when we talk to other people that people are going to be interested in the details of our lives. Um, And that again is something you can practice. Uh, And that's, I think one of the big things. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting point because, you know, one of the things we, Anne and I have just talked about as we're building out the curriculum is, is this importance of a, of a central character and, Mm -hmm. you know, having somebody who creating a humanity behind your idea, because so often when we're, when we're, you know, when, when we're thinking about how to, how to, you know, attract an investor or how to attract a business partner. It's very tempting to just talk about the business, right? The mm-hmm. metrics and the numbers and all that stuff is essential. It's, it's not, it's not unimportant. It's very important. But if you miss the humanity, then one, what ends up happening, I think as a result is that you end up giving a very forgettable pitch, Right. If you think about sort of most of the, the gatekeepers in our in, in sort of when it comes to new ideas, typically these are people who are hearing lots and lots of ideas every single day. And one of the tests that I, I sort of think about is, you know, what's the one that they're going to remember on their drive home or their commute home? What, what, or what's the one that they're going to wake up in the morning the next day and be like, yeah, that, that really stuck with me. Chances are it's not going to be because you said this thing has a $50 billion total addressable market. The chances are it's going to be because they really felt the pain of the person, that one human being that you're trying to serve. And it just so happens to be there's lots of those types of human beings out there, but you've taken them into the story. I think the other thing that your that origin story also dr- draws in for me is this idea in improvisation by, about being fiercely in the moment. Uh, that when you're improvising, you can't catastrophize about the future. You can't linger in the past. You have to stay fiercely in the moment with the understanding that the person you're improvising with is there to save you and, and your job is to save them. And so if you have an audience, and I think that idea of personification of the audience as being on your side, again, is not natural to human beings, 
but is wildly true, right? Like, I know when I'm watching people, I, I want them to win. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want this to go well. And so, you know, it, it's just, we're fighting, and this is, and you can talk about this from the Second Science Project work that we did at the University of Chicago. There's all these cognitive biases that we're constantly fighting just to, like, get stuff done, and it's us who are getting in our own way. So, Kelly, I have a question on that. So, yeah, talk about watching people and wanting them to win. Is that true for all people? I think I think it is generally true for most human beings. I think there are certain uh, sociopaths and psychopaths who maybe are not interested in that. Yeah. Right. But I mean, this this side and, and you can probably speak to this in terms of some of the research, right, in terms of uh, Nick's work. And yeah, right. Well, no. And again, actually, it, it is the when we see someone else as another human being, that's when we want them to win. Right. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the time what and that's really a lot of the work that uh, Nick Epley and some of the folks at the UFC has done is about how we don't anticipate that generic people would be interesting to us. So someone that's on the bus with us, we don't anticipate that we would like to talk to them. But if we are forced to talk to them for a minute, we suddenly have a real connection. Hmm. And so it's the minute that we know that someone else is a human being, that's when we want to buy into them. That's when we start to see them as having a mind and start. And it's, it's really natural. It's something comedians do. Yeah. Um, a comedian is going to almost always immediately introduce themselves as a person and you're going to ha- have a, uh, a connection into them so that they want you to be funny because uh, they feel like they know you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's such an interesting, the, the science is really interesting, but it's yeah. also really interesting how often we don't can uh, help ourselves connect with other people. How often we we uh, don't see other people as being humans. Yeah, and how much we how much we put up a guard or a defense that that we think is helping us, but is probably holding us back. I mean, Kelly brought up the story of George Schaller, which is at the end of the book, and and it's still. I mean, it's funny, Kelly. You say that you talk about it. I talk about it all the time. I think yeah. about it all the time. Yeah. And you know, if you're listening and you don't know the story. You know, the, the, the story is that George Schaller was one of the most fi- famous primatologists that ever lived. He, um, he trained Diane Fossey, and Fossey was the character that Sigourney Weaver played in, uh, in, the, um, in, in, in the movie. Um, Gorillas in the Mist. Gorillas yeah. in the Mist, right. And, um, and, you know, so he was presenting at a conference one day, and you know, he was showing this really groundbreaking research. And what was mystifying to the audience was that he had been able to get closer to you know these primates these gorillas than anybody had and everybody in the audience is really just confused as like why we've been doing this now for for decades if not centuries why was he able to do it and so finally somebody in the audience raises their hand they said what what is what did you do differently and Schaller says it's simple i never carried a gun i never carried a weapon with me into the forest and that was a confusing answer for people because they were like, well, okay, we carry a weapon, yes, but it's hidden in our backpack, right? So why would that even make a difference? And Schaller said, you can hide your, you can hide a gun, but you cannot hide your attitude around a gun. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have the gun in your backpack, right, it, that I think that many of us do, it, it's, it really is, you know, metaphorically serving as our guard, right? We have our guard up. Um, what Schaller was able to do by, you know, making himself vulnerable to the point of, you know, Hey, like his life was on the line. He had a vulnerability about him that the others just couldn't have. And that vulnerability and that you're talking about is something that we sense at the most primal level, right? It's just very, it's very, I've tried to put it into pages and print. I can't do it. There's a, it's, a, it's undescribable, but when you see it, you know it. When you feel it, you know it. And it ultimately is what attracts us to each other. I, yeah, well, was, and I would say it's one of the things I think that happens in improvisation that's part of that is that when I'm really in the moment with you and I'm genuinely improvising with you, I feel that vulnerability and you feel that vulnerability. And Again, going back to the magic of practice, that lots of times, I again, you can describe it to someone, you can say, oh, this is what it's like, but it isn't until you're in that moment 
genuinely listening to someone else and having them genuinely listen to you and your body changes, the way you speak changes, the way you uh, share information changes. And that that's, it's that discovery of that, that it's again, very difficult to describe other than in, in the after effect, right? Oh, that's what that is. But so helping people get there and then be able to recognize it and then do it for themselves is very rare right now. And even more so because we do so much online and we do so much without those, those communication cues. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about embodied learning, right? Which is an incredible way to learn. So it's matching the sort of great ideas with, and Ann and I both are slightly obsessed with Annie Murphy Paul's book, The Extended Mind. Mm. Uh, but, but really she, she talks about all the ways we get thinking wrong. And one of the ways we get it wrong is not realizing that the body is talking to us before the mind is. Mm. And the minute you sort of realize that as you walk through the world in the variety of ways that you walk through the world, you're like, oh, this is, I, I, I am, I, I'm, I'm actually changed uh, by this. My, my, and I'm changing the way I approach certain kinds of problem solving. Um, I'm actually reading right now a book by Todd Cashton called The Art of uh, Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot, a lot about what you both are talking about here, which is if you want to be that disruptor, and I think we're kind of talking about that for a lot of these people with new ideas, um, you have to like, you have to like show them who you are. It also takes a long while. That's also this thing of like change, radical change does not happen overnight. And probably there was a bunch of other people who took, took the shot and sacrificed themselves. And you're just working on top of that over and over again. So that kind of long game, I don't think you get to play without being conditioned. Let me ask you guys a question. Is every, is every dinner at the house really just a book club meeting? (laughs) Kind of, <laughs> maybe a little bit. It's it's half book club, half complaining about Second City. That's that is if you want that that is what happens. And and, and, and occasionally just like like uh, obsessing about uh, because I'm I'm also writing a book about comedy uh, and comedy theory, so it's obsessing about about comedy theory. It's okay. uh, I would I would love to be a guest sometime. It's just amazing. I mean I, I mean. The number of books that Kelly, I mean, Kelly and I have had many conversations. The number of books he has like put on my list is unbelievable. And the question I have for, for you, both of you is, is like absorbing just that much information, you know, the, the amount of reading that you do and figuring out a way to sort of, you know, have it not be the flavor of the week. Right. You know, right. I, I find myself reading all this new content and then I'm like, you know, I'm stuck on an idea for maybe a week or two and then I'm, and then that idea is gone. But what I, what I'm not good at is, is retrieving things that I read last year or fitting it into a framework, a way for, for it actually to stick in my life. I wonder if that's really been a thing for you or you thought about that at all. Well, for me, the difference is I read the book, but then I have to write down my notes to then talk back at the person about it so in many ways i'm completing the learning loop yeah so i'm kind of teaching the work so that's what i do with your your stuff is i like i I brought in i and then and then i i select the nuggets that i find interesting so like i just had on um it hasn't it hasn't aired yet uh barry nailbuff from yale has written a book on negotiation um and i I liked it and then he ann and i had uh, we've had a a couple conversations with him about potentially maybe doing something down the line but you know, he has a whole thing in negotiation. It's called split the pie that the number one first rule is that in negotiation, you're, you might be and often are not no, negotiating the right thing. That what you have to see is what you should be negotiating on is the thing that's going to get um, uh, made if you make this deal together. So that's the pie. Um, mm-hmm. and, so, and so like this idea, which was sort of radical to me and I really like, is before you do any of that negotiation, figure out if both parties think they're negotiating on the same thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, we might be, we might actually be talking about different things, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, very much so. I think well, I, I want to go back to sort of what Kelly does. And in fact, uh, a little plug for, I, for something that I'm really excited about in the class that we're teaching, which is 
establishing, you know, and everyone tells us to do this. And one of the great things about taking a class is that it can force you to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the biggest things that I do personally is when I'm doing something uh, improvisationally or I'm learning a new skill is making, is practicing it and then making notes about what worked for me. Mm. And that's one of, as part of the class, we're requiring the students to keep to a keep a practice journal, keep an intentional practice journal. Cause also there's lots of stuff that doesn't work. Yeah. You know, I think, I think one of the things that Kelly does when he reads these business books is grabs onto an idea that he knows he can bring into his work. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the idea of being intentional about it, cause that's part of why you get obsessed with something that it goes away is that you're not necessarily intentional about keeping track of the things that work. And then secondarily, and there's some good research around this that uh, I let Fishbuck did, um, is that sharing, one of the ways that we um, will support our habits is by sharing advice about them with other people. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm very sort of really interested in in terms of the class is A, having students be intentional about keeping track of that and journaling that and then being forced to at a certain point share what worked and why and giving giving feedback and 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 really then owning those things yeah i just real i realized ann that that is kind of what zoe chance is doing with the bling group yeah um so uh, zoe who's been on the podcast a couple of times uh started this virtual group of mostly behavioral scientists, but some people outside that discipline um, for them to support each other as they're writing their books. So it's a monthly meeting and Anne and I are now on the list because we're going to be working on a new book, the follow-up to Yes And. And, uh, and then a bunch of our pals in academia and, and basically it's a way of keeping each other accountable, getting feedback, but then everyone promotes each other's work. So literally Todd, who I'm going to be interviewing is in that group and had a book coming out. And so I'm like, great. And so that idea of like, and Vanessa Bonds talks about this too, in her book on influence is like, we all have influence that we're not tapping into. Like that's first, like first start with what you actually have. And are you maximizing that? Cause I, I bet you aren't. It's like, we all know people. Are you talking to them about your thing? <laughs> cause so, cause maybe you aren't. I love it. I, I love it. I, Cause I think, I think that you know, writing, you know, for me as a, as, as a writer and an entrepreneur, I find that journey to be pretty similar in a lot of ways. It can be, it can be lonely in both ways, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you have an idea that really hasn't been validated, right? Nobody has told you this is good. And writing's the same, you know, until it, until it comes out. And even when it does, you, you still don't quite know if this thing is any good. And so to have a, have a group of people around you throughout all of that is, uh, I think, I think it's super, I think it's really important. Just, I, I think we kind of all need that kind of group, you know, yeah. especially now. Yeah, especially now. Okay, so um, you are both Northwestern grads, which was a, a, a thing, I don't, you know, that sort of yeah. happened. Uh, but I'm curious in terms of thinking about your Northwestern journey, and I'll start with you, Anne. Like, what are your, your memories, and then what does it mean to be going back there and teaching? Well, uh, you know, I have – I was a theater major. I, I <laughs> so, so one of the fascinating things is I was just I'm I'm going out to the to campus to look at the space that we're going to be teaching in, and I realized that I was never on the north side of campus, uh, which is where tech was. No, I I take that back. I took one class. I took an introduction to computer programming where I learned Fortran. Oh. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> that tells me something about what year it was. <laughs> um, but mostly, you know, I hung out in a house with Stephen Colbert, uh, uh, making jokes late at night and uh, using illegal substances. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but so, to be it's, fair, I mean, not a lot. Huh? Not a lot on your end. No, I stopped smoking pot because it made me stupid the next day. But <laughs> not in the moment, I, though. In the moment, you were brilliant. In the moment, <laughs> I was brilliant. I saw. You know, the saddest part is at one point. You know, because you do this when you're 22. I, you know, we tape recorded us talking at two in the morning, <laughs> um, and somewhere along the way, I lost those cassettes. But they'd be worth money now. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sumil, what do you think about when you think about your Northwestern days? Oh, it's certainly not as interesting or fun as Anne's. <laughs> number one, I mean, I, I, you know, I was, I was, um, so you know, I was in Michigan for undergrad. I went to Northwestern for for grad school, and that was a split between the law school and the business school. So I spent a couple of years in the downtown area where the law school was. And then I spent, spent some time in Evanston and um, I liked Evanston. Evanston was just yeah. like, it was just a blast to be, you know, part of, I think the, the biggest thing for me was like just being surrounded by other schools, you know, to be honest with you, business school, I didn't really, I didn't really identify with it. It was, a, it was, it was, um, it just wasn't as much for me as I, I thought it might be. Um, but what I loved about Northwestern was the fact that right down the street was the theater school. I spent time at the, you know, the, the McCormick School of Media and, and took mm-hmm. a class on documentary filmmaking. And, and it was just, you know, that, that was the part of it that, that really sort of appealed to me, you know. And it's just like, I, I also think, you know, being, being a Michigan person and, you know, being from the Midwest, I, I do think that there is something as well about just like braving the cold together. Like mm-hmm. there, there was always this walk that I remember. I used to live, you know, really close to the clock tower and I'd walk to, and I'd walk to the Kellogg School of Management. So it's about, you know, what, half a mile Quarter, yep. quarters of a mile walk, but I still remember just these people just descending from all these corners with just everybody's bundled and you can't see anybody's faces and, and we're all sort of braving the cold together to get to our respective buildings. And there was, a, there was a real camaraderie around that, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, not, it was, it was 8 45 AM. We're all going to 9 AM class. I remember that. I remember that quite a bit, but I mean, I'm really, I mean, and, and what's the, what's the new classroom like? I haven't even visited it. I, I'm I'm going to see it. Next oh, you're week. going to see so, it. Yeah. So no, I was looking at the I was looking at the map, realizing that I had no mental map of that part of campus. <laughs> I also just love like you know every once in a while I get on I get on YouTube and they'll they'll, they'll suggest you know videos and they know that I'm a Northwestern grad and all of a sudden it's like. You know, Stephen Colbert speaking at Northwestern, Dan Pink speaking at Northwestern, Julia Louis-Dreyfus speaking at Northwestern. I'm like, oh my gosh, he's, I, I always forget, like, there's just this set of really, really great, cool alums that, that it's just this storied university. Well, well I, and I think, I, 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 just real quickly, I think that, you know, that those are your tribes and Second City is a tribe, you know? And so, it, the, and you have, again, speaking of influence, like, we don't just have one tribe. We all have many tribes and sort of understanding what those are and how you can sort of maximize uh, those tribes to work on, on your behalf, I think, is part of what we're talking about. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk uh, a lot at Second City about the power of ensemble. Um, and, and certainly in our industry, in the, in the comedy industry in particular, you get jobs because of someone who you've worked with. Right. You know, uh, uh, Peter Gwynn, who's a writer, talked about literally running into uh, Alison Silverman, who is a former student of mine, who was the uh, head writer for Colbert's first show. And he ran into her in New York and she was like, oh, you're here? And he was like, yeah. And she's like, do you want to try to write for this new show that I'm working on? And that's like mm-hmm. that. And they had been in classes together. Mm. And so that idea of and it's the thing that you have in the book of finding finding your circle of the people who you come to to say how is this what should i do which is which is an extension of what kelly's talking about with the writers group right finding those people you talk to but then also understanding that the people you work with and have that connection with also become your circle of people who take you to the next place in your career yeah. And that certainly has been true for me. You know, the folks at the Looking Glass Theater uh, here in Chicago and I were all at Northwestern at the same time. And we have this really ongoing, lovely connection where we feed each other, even though we don't necessarily work together in the same place. Um, and to be honest, one of the things that's interesting about entrepreneurship, such as it is, is it's often seen as a solo effort, right? Right. It's me. I'm going to come out and sell you on my idea. Right. Um and I, one of the things that's fascinating to me about is about creating a class in which entrepreneurs are supporting each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there, there were, there were, uh, the book is, the book is all about themes, right? It's the, it's the common qualities that, that I found amongst these people who I consider to be extraordinary and backable, but, you know, certain themes certainly stood out more than others. 
And what you're describing is one of them, which is that, you know, they all seemed to take this sort of, they all seem to have this mindset of long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. They, yes. they, were, they were all willing, they were all willing to be embarrassed, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet that didn't necessarily mean that they had to embarrass themselves in front of the final audience. They didn't have to go out and embarrass themselves immediately in front of the investor that was going to make the huge difference. They found these circles of people to embarrass themselves in front of, right? And w- through what we call these exhibition matches and, and, and did that over and over again until all of a sudden they walked into the, you know, the main event, the main pitch, and they came off with this almost sense of, you know, naturalness where it, 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 to me, this was one of the most bizarre things was watching people who seem like they really are improving and, um, and they are because yeah. they're not married to their script anymore, but that doesn't mean they're not practiced. Right. And that was the, that was the shift for me is I, I often, some, I often thought of people who are great at improv as just, that's the natural skill. They haven't really practiced it. It's just kind of how they are. Right. Where, you know, the, the flip was they had actually practiced so much that it came off as unrehearsed. That's right. Yeah. Well, and that's, that is what we do in improv. We practice being unpracticed. We practice right. um, uh, going into a situation and not having a full script uh, and instead uh, getting what we need to know from the other person. Right. Right. We, you know, we practice, throwing ourselves out of the plane and building our parachute on the way down and then realizing that we can do it. Yeah. And that, and that it's not, and you know, that, that sort of approach isn't necessarily easy. Meaning like, I think that sometimes you can hear that and say, Oh, well, I guess in that case, I don't need to prepare as much. Right. In that case, maybe I don't have to think as much about, cause I'll go into the room and I'll see kind of what happens but that's not what we're talking about here. It actually takes a lot more preparation to have a dialogue than it does to give a monologue, right? You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to ask the right questions. You have to be able to see things from different angles. And that takes an extraordinary amount of preparation and practice. And that also reminds me of the uh, study that uh, you worked on with ILET that just got published in terms of uh, oh, yeah, just uh, yeah. that we have to recognize. So, so the study is very simple. It used a very simple improv game. And what they discovered is that if you tell someone that something's going to be a little bit difficult, that there's going to be a little bit of discomfort involved, that they are more likely to persevere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that that's a very, and there's a, the, the value of sort of going, yeah, it's not easy. This thing that you're going to do isn't easy. And and a lot of the time we tend to think that if it's not easy to us, then then we're bad at it, right? And so interesting, it's so huge. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's the it's the say it out loud, write it down, and it doesn't mean and and, and writing it down doesn't mean you're always keeping it. If like uh, in the Cashton book, he talks about write down the negative things that you feel and then rip that up. <laughs> and 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 psych- certain psychologists think that that's a very a good thing to do because you're sort of confronting the thing and getting it out of the way. Okay, um, before we were going to do kind of a different thing for the yes and uh, ending, but before we go there, um, I have two questions. S- Sunil, does this kind of training like exist in your world or in the world of Silicon Valley? Because I don't know that it does. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it does either. I think what does exist is, hey, if you want to go raise money right now, what what is the format? What is the template that people want to see? You know, and there are plenty of books on that. I, I, I've seen you know meetups and conferences that sort of focus on that. What I what I would say is that that, that is that is that is valuable for sure. Uh, but I also think that what that deals with mainly is the aesthetic, right? What is the aesthetic mm-hmm. that you want to sort of bring in and I guess I would say two things. Number one is that sometimes people don't necessarily fit that aesthetic. You know, one of there were people in my book who I profiled and they said that, you know, they had gone in with this sort of standard PowerPoint, you know, presentation slides, and it just wasn't working. It wasn't clicking. And when they ditched that and they, and they sort of went into kind of like, you know, spoken narrative instead, 
you know, it surprised people because it wasn't what investors were used to seeing, but that was far overcome by the comfort level that they had. They were able to connect with the emotion. They were able to connect with the material that they were presenting in a far deeper way. So I don't think there is a one size fits all. And I think that that can sometimes be a problem when we sort of just focus on the aesthetic. What I think Ann and I are, are about to really dive into is, is much more about, you know, the, 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 not only the mindset, but just the, the humanness of what it means to, you know, um, share your idea and, and, you know, try to really inspire other people to believe in it, you know, and, uh, that, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, I think the goal with this class is that while people are going to come in, I think with ideas, this is going to be a lifelong skill, right? And, and it won't necessarily just be a skill that you take to the workplace. It's going to be a skill that you take to your communities. It's going to be a skill that you take to your living rooms because we're always, we're always coming up with new visions, new ideas of how we want to live our lives and how we want the people we love to be a part of that. And so we're constantly in this mode of, Hey, let's, let's do this together. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's the, that's the hope of the class. And from that perspective, I, I think this is, I think we might be onto something, you know, relatively novel. Mm. And, and uh, so I know your voice is going to be there and Sunil's voice. So you're inviting other people into this conversation, into the class, right? Uh, yeah. So we've got some terrific guest speakers. The the one that we've confirmed is uh, our friend, Kelly's my friend, because we worked with her on um, Caring Across Generations uh, and Improvisation for Caregivers is iGen Poo. And one of the things I'm excited about having iGen come in for is the ability to think of being backable as an element of advocacy and social justice, that Mm -hmm. it's not just an app uh, uh, that we are telling the story uh, to, we we are representing and advocating for people and to be backable for them. I love it. Okay, so normally we end the podcast and people tell us their yes and story, <laughs> but I'm going to ask each of you, and I, I'll start with Anne, uh, which is, can you tell us a story where someone yes handed you when they you found yourself suddenly being backable? Yes. Uh, so, so as Kelly knows, and it's very ironic that I am co-teaching this class. I'm I'm learning an enormous amount because uh, in in our relationship, Kelly is the salesman. And I am the maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so learning how to be the salesman is a, is a thing for me. But 100%, um, I, when I was the artistic director of the Second City Training Center, I had one of those ideas, um, which was to create uh, what became Comedy Studies, which is now the semester abroad at Second City that is connected to the degree in comedy writing performance that I run. The idea that there was a market and an interest in um, students to study comedy at a deeper level mm-hmm. and at the college level. And uh, it was an idea that almost immediately, and it was an idea for me that made me backable because I could speak, I knew exactly what I cared about in terms of it. I had stories, I had talked about this forever, but also that um, almost immediately, uh, Andrew Alexander at Second City and Sheldon Patinkin at Columbia College Chicago, yes, handed me in a split second. Like, yes, this is, this is the idea. This is the next thing. And no one at that point, and there are now lots of schools that have college degrees in comedy. It was nobody at that point was doing um, comedy in the United States at the college level. Despite what Emerson claims. <laughs> it, was, it was easily, I, I, all right, I'm just going to be snotty about it. <laughs> but it was, that was easily, that was 2007. That was yeah. 2006. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'm just gonna, going to um, brag for a second. There's so many alums of that program who are working in the industry, including um, my comedy daughter, Chelsea Devantes, who uh, is the head writer for John Stewart, The Problem with John Stewart, and just got a huge uh, deal. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, it, you know, and, and, and a lot of, a lot of graduates of that program are out in the, in the industry. So and as long as we're being snotty to schools, I should note that I applied to transfer to Northwestern and they didn't let me in. <laughs> True story. <laughs> Sunil. 
Um, it's hard to top that. I, you know, so when I was in Chicago, uh, after graduating from Northwestern, I joined a company called Groupon. And I started at the company early on when we were, you know, just um, a fledgling startup. And we had a pretty wild ride, you know, within within a couple of years, we, we scaled the company to, you know, over a billion dollars in revenue, you know, et cetera. And, uh, and, you know, had, had teams all over the world and we, and we went public. Um, and there was a lot of like downfall as well. And it was, it was, it was an up and down sort of journey, but my whole world was really just e-commerce, right? It was an e-commerce company. And so when I decided that I was going to, I wanted to give entrepreneurship a shot, what I did is I, I had a, I basically did what I think, you know, a lot of, you know, MBA, you know, students would do is I, I, I created a spreadsheet. <laughs> and in this spreadsheet, I had, you know, all these, you know, rows and columns and the rows were the ideas themselves. And the columns were things like market size and competition and all that. It's a very sort of intellectual kind of analysis of what startup I wanted to go after. And then I went to go see a mentor of mine, a woman named Julie Hanna. And I showed her this spreadsheet and we were, I still remember we were, we were sitting down to coffee and, you know, she, she looks at my laptop. She looks at the spreadsheet. She kind of carefully looks at each of these rows. And then, and then she looks at me and she asked me a single question. And the question was, which of these ideas makes you come alive? Hmm. And I look back at the spreadsheet and I realize that none of them really did. None of them really made me come alive. And they were all e-commerce ideas because I had spent the past several years just heads down in e-commerce. At an intellectual level, that's what I understood. But at an emotional level, I didn't really, you know, I didn't have that desire to go spend, you know, several more years focusing on e-commerce. Just didn't connect to any of these ideas at an emotional level. And what she shared with me is, look, you know, there's a difference between financial runway and emotional runway, right? We think about, when we think about startups and we think about projects inside companies, we tend to sort of really focus on financial runway. Do we have enough financial runway to get a project off the ground or a company off the ground? But the other type of runway we don't talk enough about is emotional runway, right? Which is just as important because as it turns out, when you look at projects and companies and, and people who weren't able to get their ideas off the ground or, or, or fizzled out over time, it typically wasn't because they ran out of financial resources, but they just ran out of energy, right? And if you, if you don't have sort of that emotional connectivity to your idea, then likely you're going to run out of emotional runway along the way. So I ended up scrapping the spreadsheet all together. And I thought about like, what, what is it that truly makes me come alive? And that's, that's the point where I, I really shifted from, you know, this world I'd been in e-commerce to healthcare, which is truly, yeah. you know, what I, what I feel, you know, is, is it is my dharma. That's, 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 that's where I want to be spending my time. That's so interesting. Cause you know, I haven't thought about the connection that we all have through healthcare, <laughs> Because this this improvisation for caregivers program was very important uh, for Anne and I in its initial conception, uh, became even more important when our daughter got ill, and then um, like we were just they, uh, my bill for my hernia surgery just arrived, you know, and you realize you're paying, it, it's so broken, the system's so broken, yeah, and right. it needs to be centered on human beings, it needs to be accessible, and that's something that like all of us really need to be working on, I think, to affect that change. And that's, that's not a connection that I thought I, I actually considered before. Yeah, no, I mean, I think one thing that's been just so, so encouraging to me is, is I think you have this brilliant, you know, crop of entrepreneurs in the making. And when I say entrepreneurs, I don't necessarily mean people who are going to go build their own businesses, but people who may want to go join companies and change them from the inside or join governments right. and join and change them from the inside. And, and I think that the passion that I see, at least I don't, you, you, you two tell me, but when I was, when I was graduating from Northwestern, the number of people who wanted to go into, you know, education or healthcare was just like, it's pretty minimal, but today, you know, it seems like those are really, really like hot areas. And that's very encouraging for me. Like I, I want, I want to see many, many more innovative, smart people, you know, trying to really think about where do we go from here? Yeah. Well, that's one of the really exciting things about the class is that the students applied and they had to apply with a, an idea. 
something yeah. that they're already passionate about. And that was one of the things that struck me is how many of these students already have ideas about how to change something that needs to be changed and uh, and solutions. And, and that passion for changing not just the business sector, but for the, the passion for changing the life sector. And, and I mean that in terms of when I say life, not just like lifestyle, but, but genuinely the value of people's lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. S- sitting here in the world that we live in right now with everything that's going on, we're going to need some really powerful change agents. So hopefully the two of you are going to do that. Not, not putting too much pressure on you. <laughs> so Neil and Ann, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you, Kelly. All right, Ann, I'll see you in the classroom. You will. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive